to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. We usually give you the tools you need to fight for a better future for everyone, the context straight from the smartest people on Earth, and the action steps you can take to support their work. Today's a little different, and I'm really excited to get to it. Before we do, a friendly reminder, you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at ImportantNotImp, or start a conversation. You can also email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Uh, you can join tens of thousands of other smart folks to get the latest news, analysis, and what you can do about it uh, from our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. Now, again, this week's episode is, uh, it's a new thing. And I'm really excited to dig in. Uh, it's a new format, uh, much more organic, so please bear with me. But it's the first in, hopefully, a new series of conversations with up-and-coming world changers. Uh, people are just getting started, and, oh, man, uh, the first guest is just so indicative of what the young people around the world believe in and are capable of. Um, his name is Frank Buncombe Fourth. And I'm very excited for you to get to know him. So let's go do that now. Our guest today is Frank Buncombe the Fourth, and together we're gonna kind of start a new series of conversations here. Uh, starting with Frank, I guess with the name I'm making up right now, and we can call it a uh, "What Can I Do?" And it's a question that I get so often, whether it's climate or COVID or healthcare, whatever it might be, uh, philanthropic stuff. Uh, and I couldn't think of a more perfect guest to kick this off than my man, Frank. Frank is driven and kind and curious. And I'm very excited to get into his work and his dreams and all his visions today. Frank has about 400 side projects and we're going to get into it. Frank, welcome. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I'm excited to be on today and to talk about a few of the 400 side projects that we have cooking up. <laughs> I get it, man. I, I always I assume after our conversation that you're like, whether you have the big whiteboard on the wall or notes document, whatever it is, that's me. It's just like 40 things that were supposed to happen yesterday. And then there's the other things that did happen and then the things that didn't. And that's just part of it. And that's uh, that's how it goes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say something like that, except it's all crammed in a big notion document somewhere. Um, I'm a big fan of notion. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I got, I got to get into it, man. I feel like I missed the boat on that thing. It's like everything. It, it's all the stuff in one place, right? That's the whole thing. Yeah. That's the whole thing. And I, I, I like it. It's, it's surpassed Google drive for me. I'm, I'm not, I'm, this is not an ad, um, but it's definitely past, <laughs> surpassed Google drive for me. <laughs> That's awesome, man. All right. Well, you can sell me on Notion too. Let's do it. It's one of those things. Again, I'm like, I'm going to do this, but I can't do it like in five minutes a day. If I'm going to commit to it, I need to like take a week off and throw everything in there. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Hey, Frank, uh, tell the people real quick who you are and what you do in sort of the brief version. We'll explore everything. Tell us uh, what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. I run product management at Eric's Health right now, which is a health tech startup doing remote patient monitoring, um, essentially connecting doctors to their patients from home so that we can triage individuals for physicians. And we're currently focusing on chronic conditions such as um, chronic lung disease or COPD, blood pressure or hypertension management, as well as congestive heart failure or CHF. Um, so we're, we have an algorithm that can predict um, a patient's deterioration based off of um, their vitals and symptoms 
um, that they report to us. Um, and then we use that information to alert their physicians so that they can hopefully handle these situations before they end up with their patient needing to be hospitalized. So it's, it's been a fun journey to work on. It's a lot of fun being on the product side and, and running the product management team and kind of having this understanding for healthcare, which can be a complicated interweb of who's paying for the product, who's using the product, who's the product yeah. being used on. So it's, it's, it's really fun to detangle those things because it's tough. And I think myself, like a lot of individuals, like to handle or deal with and solve tough problems. So it's a lot of fun. And that's my day job. And of course, I'm certain at some point we'll, we'll make our way down the list of some other things that I'm working on as well. For sure. Awesome, man. Uh, tell us, uh, you are, compared to me, uh, a youthful human full of energy and, <laughs> and, and passion for the world. Tell the people, how, how old are you and, and where were you before we're uh, uh, at your current job? Yeah, absolutely. I'm 24 years old and I am relatively recently out of college. Um, <laughs> two years, I, I graduated from Stanford University two years ago in which I played football there. And football has always been a massive part of my life. So sports, I'm still incredibly passionate about. I just don't put nearly as much time into it as I have since I was six years old. So yeah, I, I'm relatively young in the grand scheme of things. And this is my first gig out of college. I started with this company when we're about five months old and working as a, on the product management side and then kind of grew with the company and within it and taken on much more than I can chew at times. Um, but I've, I've started to learn how to consume more things that are on my plate. And as Quinn knows at this point, I like to have a lot of things on my plate. So it's definitely been a fun experience for me. That's awesome. Just wait until you have children. We'll, we'll have another conversation oh about, about all the things okay, on your yes. plate. <laughs> yes, we can, we can. I might have to throw a lot off my plate at that point. <laughs> it just, it literally just gets all dumped out the window. Uh, awesome, man. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, usually what we, how we frame uh, our main conversations is we have a little quick context for the topic at hand, whether that's like, ocean acidification, right? Or vaccines or, or, or uh, you know, asteroid deflection or pediatric cancer, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then we dig in some action-oriented questions. Uh, and then we talk about what everyone out there can do uh, to support you and your mission and things like that. And we are going to do some of that. But again, it's a little different. So you and I are going to kind of feel this thing out together. Um, Absolutely. I do want to retain the question we usually use to set the tone uh, for these conversations, uh, and it's a little ridiculous, and usually people laugh, but then we usually get some really great answers out of them. So instead of saying, uh, Frank, tell us your entire life story, um, I'd like to ask Frank, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Oh, you, you would think I would be prepared for this question after, <laughs> after listening to a few um, podcast episodes, but boy, I did. Come on, did you even cheated. You should be ready. One. I should be ready. Be bold, you know, man, I be should honest. be ready, but I, I think this is a tough one to answer, but I, I think I am vital to, to the advancement of our species. I personally believe that each of us are here for a reason, for a purpose to fulfill and in our planet, whether that is progressing our species, um, protecting our planet, our Earth, that is um, gives us life and sustains us. Um, so I think I'm one of the one of the many puzzle pieces that fits into that journey. And 
I think that makes me unique and vital in a sense. And, but I think that can be extended to each and every one of us, um, which I know we'll talk more later about what each one of us can do, whether how, no matter how small or large that role is, whether we're leader of a Fortune 500 corporation or the janitor at that Fortune 500 corporation, we all have, we all kind of fit into the larger scheme of things. Um, and I'm excited that I have, I'm starting to find my role and find my path in that. So I don't know how well that answered your question, um, but it's great. That's, that's, that's kind of how, that's kind of how I see things through, through that lens. I love it, man. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. It's a, it's a, it's a weird one to be put on the spot. I think Brian asked me once and I just completely dodged the question. Um, so I appreciate <laughs> you actually answering it. Of course. Of course. Uh, yeah, I, was, I, was, I almost wanted to say, I don't fucking know. I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great answer too, man. I mean, how, we get some great people who are like flash, like newsflash, like I'm not, but then they go on like this three minute thing. Not not dissimilar from what you said, which is like everybody's got a role to play. Like everybody's a piece of the puzzle. We just don't know where the hell it goes mm-hmm. yet, you know. And right. and that's mm-hmm. pretty important, you know. We're all trying to figure it out. Even if, like you said, you're already some CEO or the janitor or a college grad or or whatever, you know. There's a we're all trying to figure this thing out, man. So listen, this is the part where we usually again like set up some context and give like medical statistics or ocean statistics or whatever it might be. I want to talk about one thing that I think you're really going to get into. So uh, have you ever heard of Bell Labs? I have, yes. Yeah, so it was this joint, uh, you know, years ago in the mid-20th century that drove a lot of this sort of technological innovative stuff, right? And it was famous for, and and you hear about like Pixar modeling it when Steve Bob Jobs built the building for, for Pixar, where uh, you go down the hallway and you've got like chemistry here and, and mathematics here and physics here and whatever it might be. And the point is they all kind of got to run together and it can spawn more ideas and 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 more innovation, right? And so Pixar right. does the same thing where there's like two bathrooms in the entire building and everybody has to run into each other and you'd think like <laughs> some conversations are going to come up and people are just going to spark new ideas. So there was this guy, and I wrote a piece about this a couple weeks ago but by the time this comes out. Um, there was a guy, this mathematician who was amazing. His name was Richard Hamming, okay? And so he gave a speech uh, about his time uh, at Bell Labs. And uh, I think it was 1986, I believe, 1989, something like that. And he described, among everything else, and we'll put this in the show notes, a, pre- a pretty brutally honest lunch convers- series of lunch conversations he had with these guys from the chemistry department. Keep in mind, he was in the math department. Mm-hmm. So as he put it, and I'll just, I'll kind of read this part of the speech. He said, I went over and I said, do you mind if I join you in, in the lunchroom? And he said, they can't say no. So I started eating with them for a while. And I started asking, what are the important problems of your field? Now, just to stop there, you have to understand, like, this is a very curious person, but he was also interested in knowing if they knew what the important problems of their field might be. And then he said, after a week or so, I said, what important problems are you working on? And after some more time, I came in one day and said, if what you are doing is not important, and if you don't think it's going to lead to something important, why are you at Bell Labs working on it? And I think it's this really interesting way of looking at all these just enormous, complex, comprehensive, systemic problems that we've got in the world, right? We can say mm-hmm. like, oh, we got to fight climate change, which is actually like 7,000 different things that all interact yeah. in a huge variety of different ways, right? right. 
Or like, we've got to fix public health, which is just enormously complicated from food to water to air to treatment to insurance, all this different stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the systems were designed by white guys. They're pretty racist, and that's coming through (laughs) in all of these different manifestations. Mm -hmm. But it, it requires both understanding your field, understanding how your field interacts with other fields, understanding the first principles of these problems, like what are the immovable pieces of it? And then looking at them and going like, how can I actually work on those things? And in the context of us talking today and, and how, I, how I have conversations with, you know, off, again, offline, like in sort of coaching with some of these CEOs and such, it's thinking about, is this a moment where you or your company or your industry can ask, what do we make and why do we make it? And if it's not contributing to fixing those problems or even identifying those problems, much less working on them, mm-hmm. it might be a good moment, considering all the transformational things that need to happen and are going to happen, to ask, like, should we start over, right? And right. some people shouldn't start over. Some people uh, are already doing the thing. Some people are at the beginning of their journey like you and are doing one thing and filling out 400 others. Mm-hmm. Um, some are volunteering or doing it through philanthropy. There's all these amazing ways, right? But the key is there's so much to do and we're in such an amazing place. We're in such a potentially fraught place, right? And every single one of us, like you had in your answer, can contribute to any of these world's most important problems in really a fundamental way. And it starts with sort of identifying like, what are my values? What are my skills? What brings me joy? All, the, all this different shit, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in, like we said before we got going, about the thousands and, and frankly, like millions of folks like you who are just getting started doing awesome shit. So I'm, I'm happy to keep doing sort of this side coaching and all this stuff, generalist, like, right. this is how the world is changing stuff. But I'm really excited to really hone this, this method of helping folks like you understand, like, where can I have an impact? Why do I want to have an impact? What is influencing me to do this? How do I like to work, et cetera, et cetera? What can you do, essentially? So for your case, Frank, this job that you're working on that's so cool and couldn't be better time for something like COVID, frankly, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's working on one of those important problems, right? And I'm curious, why do you do that job? What made you take the role? Let's start with the company itself. Actually, let's back up. Let's start with the industry itself. Why are you working in healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. First, I I love how you framed that with that story. I think that is definitely incredible. It can ground you um, to really sit and have those kind of take that time to think about if what I'm doing is important. I think that that in, in itself is important to to take that time to do so. But I think why I'm working in healthcare, I've wanted to be, I grew up wanting to be a neurosurgeon since I was roughly seven years old. And it took me a while to to kind of figure out exactly why did I want to be a neurosurgeon from such a young age? And I think uh, YouTube was pretty popular when I was young. Obviously, I'm not I'm not that old. I used to I used to grow up watching like YouTube videos of of brain surgeries. Like I just go and like type in brain what? surgery, and I, I'd be I was like eleven years old just watching Frank, um, what? like like a skull <laughs> be removed. Um, and I've my my dad who is just like complete weak stomach individual. Like 
he could not watch it. I, I'd just be sitting there like, I'd, I don't know if, am I off? Maybe. I'd, I'd definitely watch him while I was eating too. It defects me. Like, it doesn't what? affect me. It doesn't affect me at all. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up with this with this pool, um, and was always fascinated by the brain and and neurosurgery. And it, it didn't it didn't fully crystallize for me until I probably a f- quite a few years later. I think when I was in high school, my dad kind of had the thought. And I think right around that time when I was seven, a little bit after that, my my grandmother passed away from pneumococcal meningitis, um, which is a, essentially the infection of a pneumococcal bacteria in like her her brain and the surrounding tissues, like the spinal cord, et cetera. Um, and she passed away pretty quickly from it. It was it was it was rather sudden. She was in her sixties, lived a full life, um, well, full ish, almost not knocking on the door, full life, but. Um, um, it was it was pretty sudden, and I don't think I fully registered that as a child, but maybe subconsciously I did, and that's that's where my draw to healthcare came. As I see, like how you can impact lives and and really change not just the individual's life but their loved ones, then that that really drew me to healthcare so much, and I think that's why I'm still in the industry and see it as my number one passion. I appreciate you sharing that, man. So you used to sit there and eat like Lucky Charms and watch brains be removed from skulls. So we're (laughs) different in that respect. Yes. (laughs) When your grandma was diagnosed and then passed away from from something that I, uh, from what I, again, extremely limited under, uh, have extremely limited understanding of. Mm -hmm. How did that, because she didn't just get Cancer, right? Which is mm-hmm. something that can be very complicated, but is almost more commonly understood in, right. in a layman's version. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like this thing that you'd nerded out on so hard about prepared you for something like that? And how do you feel like that affected you over those next few years? Yeah, it's it's tough to say, given my my youth at the time, exactly what was correlated with with one another, but I def- it definitely gave me probably more of an understanding of what was happening than the average 10-year-old at that point. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a damn moment when it happened, particularly because my, my grandmother lived two houses down from me. Actually, um, I'm here home in San Diego right now, and the house, is, the house two houses down from mine, um, we still call my grandma's house. It's, it's a house where... Um, one of her one of her brothers lives in the house, home now, but we also refer to it as my grandma's house. So we're we're definitely very very close. I'd see her every single day. So it was it was a it was a big change in in the life of a child. And I'm not I'm not too certain how the hell it affected me, but it was like fuck. Um, she's gone and she's gone by for a reason that is related to these random strange videos that I'm watching for a reason that I couldn't even tell you. So it, it, it crystallizes something strange, but I can't put my finger on exactly what the hell it was. Sure. I mean, people get into things for a thousand different reasons, right? I mean, right. some people get into the medical profession or uh, to be an attorney because it's good money or because they like to work long hours or because they right. like contracts. So they like beating people in a courtroom. <laughs> it seems like you have... Besides, like rubbing these YouTube videos in your dad's face, mm-hmm. w- 
it seems like you've always wanted to help people. Do you feel like that continued or was enhanced after that? And and how do you feel like that translates to taking the job you did in healthcare? Yeah, I think it was greatly enhanced by that, to be honest. Maybe a year or two after that, when I first started in the very beginning of high school, um, my sister and I started up a small organization that we called Young Christians Making a Difference, in which we'd we'd make like basic sandwiches and go out and, and hand them out to to individuals experiencing houselessness out in San Diego, or we'd we'd sell candy illegally at our high schools. I actually had to talk to my principal about that. Um, we sell candy at our high schools in order to raise money for <laughs> an orphanage in in Tijuana, Mexico. Um, called Hogar Infantola Gloria. So I definitely think that kind of sparked something within us, within my household, and in this nature feed, feeling, feeding into wanting to give back and to help. And I think that's kind of tied into, that's like the overarching theme of all of my side projects that, that I work on. Um, they're in various sectors, like obviously my full-time job is in healthcare, my side project that's taking most of my time right now, at least cognitively, is in the social justice prison reform space. I'm also working with a, with a clothing brand that has a mission to inspire and, and inspire others. And the, the brand is called Feed Love, and it has the, the mission to inspire others to give love. And we also do like some, some small events as well, which was just pe- this past weekend handing out some some food to individuals experiencing houselessness in San Diego. So that's been that bit has been a theme throughout my life. Um, so like all of these things, these areas that I'm touching, I think the central theme would probably be trying to help others. I love that. I, I love how early that started for you. I love that it got you in trouble with the principal. I mean, <laughs> I got in trouble with the principal for entirely different reasons. So I'm, <laughs> I'm thank, thankful for people like you out there. It seems as though giving sandwiches to folks who, who are homeless, um, uh, working on clothing, helping with prison reform, your specific job at your specific telehealth, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. company in a healthcare industry, all seem to fit this practical niche of specifically helping folks who are without something, who are already suffering in a specific way way you know when you're homeless you you i mean look th- this country says it you know provides for the ability to pursue life and liberty and and happiness but mm-hmm, you can't do right. that without clean air and water and and food and and shelter and and we do a poor job of those things so you were giving food to people who who at least didn't have two of those things shelter and and food and it right. and Again, maybe you can go over the details of, of, of what your job is and what your company does, your, this, this first company you're working for, which is providing this remote monitoring for, for folks who are suffering when we do a poor job of, you know, so much of our system is designed to be reactive. Um, and that's such a big part of our problem, right? Is everybody just exactly. goes to the emergency room. We don't, mm-hmm. uh, ha- we don't emphasize wellness. We don't emphasize primary care physicians. We don't Everybody doesn't have insurance. Um, you know, right. doctors only get like four hours of, of nutrition training in school. Everything is designed to be reactive and surgery and medicinal. But what you're doing is you're trying to help people who already have these conditions along the way. Does that feel like that fits in there? Yeah, absolutely. 
and you you hit the theme right on the right on the nail. Um, that's what our company is trying to transform our healthcare system from its reactive state to being more proactive. So in the sense, um, a lot of physicians, especially these elderly patients I work with with chronic conditions, you might see them every few months, if not every year. And then the other times that you mm-hmm. see them are when they come when they're hospitalized, whether that's going to the emergency room or coming in a little bit too late. And then their their issue requires hospitalization. What we're trying to do in effect is be able to monitor these patients in a way that doesn't add too much of a workload onto our physicians. Um, and because that's just a non-starter. Um, it can be burdensome on their workflows or their um, nurse practitioners or whatever. And essentially what we're trying to do is create a platform that can monitor these patients and then send a physician uh, a meaningful alert when a patient is trending in a direction, their disease state is trending in a direction that we don't want it to go. So that practitioner has the ability to interact and engage with that patient, whether that's a telehealth visit or that's having them come in in person for a visit before they require hospitalization. And that should have been great benefits for everybody. The patient is able to lead a healthier life. Hopefully we can reduce mortality as well as morbidity. So just that oftentimes with these, these patients in the disease state, as they get worse, you and I, we get a cold, we're at our baseline health and we get a cold, we're a little bit, we're a little bit less healthy. We get over our cold and then we get back to where we're at healthy. Oftentimes sure. with these disease states, um, they get a little bit worse and then they don't, that's their new baseline. You don't get, you don't get back to that old state of healthy. Um, so our hope is that by, by stopping these, preventing these hospitalizations, that we can increase the amount of time that these patients get where they're healthy, where they can be active. And hopefully we can, we can make our mark here in this country, obviously, um, with aspirations in the long term to, to help out in other countries as well. And kind of shift our healthcare infrastructure on its head. So you always hear about these, you know, typically white male Silicon Valley founders who are investing in, um, you know, defeating aging, living longer, yes. <laughs> things like that. Well, like, mm-hmm. you know, a huge majority of our country doesn't have healthcare. <laughs> right. um, and we, we do, you know, we just had this wonderful conversation. Um, we two recently, but one that sticks with me because of how immediately impactful it is uh, with, with uh, Congressman Lauren Underwood from Illinois about um, she's working on this act called the Momnibus Act, and it's 12 bills around uh, black uh, mortality for mothers, um, <clears throat> for, for soon-to-be mothers and, 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 uh, and new mothers, because uh, black moms um, uh, around pregnancy and in the year after die at three to four times the rate of, of, of white moms in this country. And so yeah. mm-hmm. it's about making sure that these women get to survive. And then, but, but as usual, you know, and especially with COVID too, we focus a lot on just the deaths and there's so the, the percentage, you know, the multiple of people who suffer, even if they don't die. And it's the same thing with COVID with long COVID things like that yeah. or, or diabetes mm-hmm. or, or whatever it might be, or like you said, COPD um, or mental health. The, there's a huge percentage of people that, that are, that are suffering. And it seems as though 
with what you do at this company, mm-hmm. you're you're trying to, and again, it's a little it's a little bit of the reactive, right? Which is intervening before it becomes too big of an issue, right? Mm-hmm. right? This active monitoring because there's some reaction is always going to be necessary. It's the degree. And it's getting there before someone has to has to go to the hospital, right? right? Whether they've taken care of themselves or not, or the system's taking care of them or not. It's almost like increasing the quality of life as opposed to just the longevity, right? And you talked about how when you have one of these issues, one of these conditions, whether it's inherited or not, or, mm-hmm. or comprised of both, that, like you said, there's a new baseline once you have them. All right. And that's not too dissimilar from going to prison, is it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is that we not only put far too many people in prison and, and far over-index on, on black Americans, but even when you get out, there's a different baseline than when you went in, before you went in for the first time. Right. And that's a big piece of reform. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you're doing there and and why that matters? Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely jump jump further than that. Before that, I'm really glad that you pulled on that that thread of this focus on life extension because I think I definitely think it's it's a it's a really interesting one and like I like you mentioned on the covid piece like mortality is important. Um, it's important to talk to to think about like the deaths that that COVID has caused, um, but oftentimes that argument is used to try to dismiss how like impactful COVID has been on us as a society because like morbidity or like the the conditions the effects that people live with after um, just gets completely overlooked. It's like oh, people aren't dying at a crazy rate, so like whatever. But I think that that misses, like, not talking talking about morbidity misses the point by a mile because, like you mentioned, the long COVID sure. and so on and so forth. And just in regards to the the life extension piece, um, really, what what is five more years at the end of one's life if they're all like heavily disease ridden years? And that's what we're we're trying to avoid and trying to work towards is that obviously reduction in mortality as well, but making sure that there's an emphasis on morbidity and living like long, healthy lives and not just long lives. Because as Drake said, he's here for a good time, not a long time. I like to find myself somewhere in the middle. I want to be, I want to be there. I want to be around for decently long, but I want to, I want it to be a good time um, too. So, so I I, want to go a little bit more middle ground on that one. Um, But yeah, shifting shifting a little bit to to the that new baseline piece that you mentioned um in regards to to prison and and that um my god that industry kind of that complex a lot of the work that I've been doing there is with a group called Forbes Ignite I'm not sure if you're you're familiar with it. it's relatively sure Young company. It's an affiliate. It's an affiliate of Forbes, Forbes magazine. Essentially, a social change making organization for people looking to connect with other folks, hoping to try ambitious and novel concepts, um, which I'm trying. So one of the main things that I'm focusing on is 
how can we shift how can we shift prison revenue modeling from from receiving stipends for housing inmates towards tying it to recidivism rates i'm i'm huge on like incentive structures i think incentive structures sure. are are like run the world in a sense and we're all like playing into these incentive structures that's why there's a whole capitalism versus socialism versus communism all debate blah 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 it's really just boils down to like which incentive structures are you creating with the different isms sure, that you and, want to and, debate and, and look at what we've designed so far you know you've got um you know the the prescription industry that's that's uh you know the incentives are based on how much of what that you prescribe mm-hmm. or that we're based on surgeries or that you know the the charters of of public companies are specifically to return value to shareholders. Sure. Yes, um, and they've all they've succeeded at every one of those. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, now the seas are rising, and you know it's a nightmare. So we have to recalibrate those things. Yeah, absolutely. We we're, we're surprisingly good as a as a society at um, accomplishing the incentives that are set in front of us. Um, so I think we we. We do the best that we can at, at setting them at the groundwork. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty in a sense, but we need to do better at at restructuring these incentive modelings as we as we get more information. We get more data. We do that with everything else, right? Like with our machine learning, we get more data, then we restructure the model. Um, sure. Why aren't we doing that with some of our systems as well? As well? Um, so that's what that's what I've been working on in in regards to to trying to shift prison reform. And my goodness, it is hard as hell. Um, it, it is hard to, to, to test that hypothesis, to, to structure it, because these systems are so entrenched. And like, I'm trying to leverage Forbes Ignite and some of their, and some of their connections, but like what potential like warden or municipality is going to talk to this 24-year-old kid with this idea that he wants to like, prototype and see how the hell to make it work um so so it's been a long haul um it's it's definitely tough and i think at this point i just need to talk to more people about it because i think there's potential for for realigning this infrastructure there it's just hard as hell to to make any traction on it (laughs) so uh, on that note i would love for you to be a little more specific about what is your typical first step for attempting to have those conversations. And I guess, what is the typical obstacle? Again, if you can be specific on what you're running into. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, like I said, in short, prisons are getting paid for how many people they house. Incentive right. is to house more people, um, just just plain and, and simple. And um, I'm not certain how, how familiar um, individuals are with recidivism, but it's a, it's essentially individuals that leave prison and return. And the lower your recidivism rate is, which which should be tied to being a rehabilitation center like our like our um, carceral system claims to be, claims to rehabilitate individuals so that they can pay their time for whatever they did, their debt to society, come back out into society and be functioning members of society. Um, but that isn't often the case. Often individuals come out of these these um, institutions worse off, um, worse off, like you mentioned, Quinn, with this lower baseline. And some of the the biggest issues that I've that I've gotten, the biggest obstacles that I've run into, um, has been um, 
not to not to mention any specific individuals, um, but I've gotten a few initial kind of meetings with some individuals at various municipalities. And in short, the conversation essentially ends with this is impossible um, in regards to the prison industry or the the lobbyists um, wouldn't let this happen in a sense. So and this that, is when you're meet, sorry, this is when you're meeting with the municipality, not with the specific prison itself. Yes, exactly. That that may be where I need to shift um, kind of like who I'm I'm talking to in a sense. But the the power lies with the municipalities, actually more so probably higher up in, in the state level and the state and federal, as far as that's that's who writes the checks. Um, mm-hmm. the prisons are the ones cashing the money. Um, but then, but the, the people who write the checks are the the states um, and the federal governments, and so that's who that's the angle that I was trying to talk to initially. Um, but essentially, they're saying, "Oh, this this is this would be far too difficult to accomplish." Um, at least the initial individuals, and that's the obstacle that I've been running into thus far. So it's been tough to build any traction, and I haven't had an opportunity yet to engage with individuals who are running prisons, like wardens. Um, or correctional officers within facilities. I haven't had that opportunity yet. I would think that they wouldn't like jump at the opportunity, but I could mm-hmm. be incredibly wrong. Um, sure. And I and I want to I want to be positive um, and and kind of optimistic. So I could be incredibly wrong. So that might be next step for me. <laughs> I appreciate your dedication to uh, to realistic optimism but also mm-hmm. your your dedication to hoping that you're wrong which you know yes. is sort of the goal of science isn't it which is just like i don't know we'll find out yeah um and i've been i've been hope i've been waiting for somebody to just to tell me like this is a bad idea or like this is not this is like not a good idea um and i haven't gotten that yet which tells me so that there n- might be something there so um, you're not being defeated on the idea you're being defeated uh, sort of at the first, the first door of, of this wouldn't work. Yes, as far as like, um, not necessarily the idea, but like this would be too hard to implement. Um, we have other things that Do we're trying to accomplish. Do they give specific reasons? Um, pri- primarily, there's a lot of other things that they're trying to accomplish, especially um, a lot. Oftentimes, we're talking to elected officials, and elected f- officials usually when they're campaigning, they've made certain promises or, or guarantees of their constituents that um, oftentimes are high priority. And if if the, the promises that, that they made to their constituents weren't necessarily um, prison reform, um, then it isn't like, you generally isn't the top of their list. They want to get their things knocked off that they told um, so that hopefully they get reelected. And that's kind of the incentive structure of politics for better or worse. I mean, we want our we want our constituents to be like accountable to the people that that voted them in. Um, sure. So I don't don't know if that's a that's a that's a good or bad thing in a sense, but it's just um, something that I've definitely run into a few times now. It seems like maybe trying to get into the ear of some of these folks running for office or ex- existing incumbents, uh, so that you can be the prerogative on that yes. sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, some of 
I'm sure there's, uh, you know, again, like prison reform is is an enormously complex issue. And so there's a thousand mm-hmm. different inputs and a thousand different things that do need to be fixed and work together. I mean, untangling things like this, like climate or public health are, are incredibly complicated and there's going to be a lot of obstacles and roadblocks and, and trial and error. But it seems like there shouldn't be any reason why this shouldn't become something that is is discussed so that it can come a little more. Top down. Yeah. If if the if the obstacle seems to be top down, then it seems like that's where we might need to go. Yeah, I, d- I definitely think so. But there's definitely been some super useful things that have come out of these conversations. Um, outside of just me f- me feeling a little bit defeated, um, there's definitely been some some optimism. And one one kind of thread that came up that I hadn't thought thought about previously. Um, was in regards to how we think about like upskilling and reskilling um, inmates so that we can truly have rehabilitation centers that rehabilitate and, and give the the inmate a skill so that when they when they leave the carceral system that they can be a functioning member of society. And the one thing that that I heard that really like resonated with me um, was like how can we see the individuals crying? And like turn that into a positive that can be used within like our society. And one that came to mind was like um, a, a drug dealer, whether it's like a low level, or like a mid tier drug dealer and seeing that drug dealer as potentially a logistics expert um, because that's, yeah. that's what they're, that's what they were doing um, in a sense. And like, sure. What could they potentially be connected with an Amazon or a FedEx or any of these huge logistics companies that we have, um, sure, and and translate those skills because I'm certain those skills are probably quite translatable. Um, so yeah, that's that's a, another interesting thread that I've been trying to pull on as well. It's interesting. Um, my sister has gone back and forth over the past <clears throat> ten years or so from working on both Obama campaigns to being a teacher for um, for uh, learning disabled, marginalized kids. It's like te- teaching times three um, to going back to doing data science and, and some more policy type things on the corporate and philanthropic level and then back down to one-on-one. It seems like you are you didn't become a doctor yet. I mean, you're only 24. Jesus, you have a thousand years left. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm so tired. You have so much time. <laughs> but it seems like you're trending a little more toward... You're also not a criminal defense lawyer. It mm-hmm. seems like you're trending a little more towards, again, finding ways to raise that baseline for folks who are suffering and doing that on a bit of a broader scope because you're not a doctor. You're not working on one person at a time. Do you feel like that was a conscious decision? I mean, again, you're 24. It's been like uh, six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that, man. I, I feel my body definitely feels older than it is. Probably I mean, I have things I've lost in football. my office, like since you graduated <laughs> college, it's ridiculous. Like I, I don't even understand, but I'm, I'm curious because again, you can go back and forth and, and, and people do that. And, and, it's great. I mean, no one stays in one job or one field or one application of the things that they're good at for a long time. And right. when if you're working at a corporation, let's say you're you're 
company becomes much bigger, gets acquired, right? You would you would work your way up the ladder. And as you work up the, your way up the ladder of these things, you actually work less on the nitty gritty, more on broader mission type things. Right. Um, but it's good to have both things. But it's interesting. It seems like you're you're a little more focused on, I don't want to say like policy, but sort of the, bro- the, the practical implementation of these broader implications that are still very definable, but it's not one-on-one. Is that, yeah. do you find that that's become more attractive to you? Yes. Um, you couldn't have described that more perfectly. Um, Great, I'm done. That, See it. <laughs> I think the the biggest reason why I, I think I decided not to take the plunge directly into medical school, because I, I did all the, the pre-med courses and such while I was at Stanford. And I think the biggest reason why I didn't is because I was still, and I was unsure about how much I wanted to just focus solely within healthcare. And no healthcare is massive. And yes, you can do one-on-one patient care. You could also run a hospital. You could also be working within healthcare policy. Um, but I think it was a little uncertain about if I just wanted to primarily be in this field and like committing another four years of medical school, then another one or two residency. That was seemed like a hefty commitment for where I was at mentally. And now I can definitely say that there's like a 3% chance that I continue, that I go into medical school because um, kind of like what we've talked about on during this time, I have so many passions and interests that are broad, that are, that are pretty broad sweeping. And like, I, I want to continue to work within healthcare, but I want to also work within prison reform and work within sustainability and climate and what we can do on on that in that space and all these different areas. So I'm be honest with you, the thought has been in the back of my mind. I never saw myself as a politician. I still don't. And I don't even I don't know if I could if I want to do it. But in the back of my mind it's been simmering about how I can be more involved within policy just because it is so it touches everything. Like it, it it truly does, whether it's healthcare, all these concepts that we've talked about, um, politics kind of seeps into our lives for, for better or for worse, or whether we want to or we don't. So that's kind of where I potentially see myself heading in maybe 10, 15, or like, as you like to say, a thousand years. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe I will end up um, being more in that space, whether, whether it is being a politician itself or, or working more closely with um, organizations that do, such as like a Code for America or, or organizations of that manner. Um, I definitely see myself working towards the policy lens because the impact that you can have um, is just like 10x, whatever other industry, in a sense, um, just because you can touch so many things. And I, I have so many interests. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Do you feel like you have a pretty good sense of and it's, this is always interesting coming out of college though you're an, an athlete with a very busy schedule like I was so I think it's uh, it's definitely I mean athletics in college is an entirely different lifestyle than than you know any people can do a thousand different things in right. college you can be very busy with clubs and you can be very mm-hmm. busy with whatever it might be or you're a TA or whatever it might be but athletics is is mm-hmm. you know it's a logistical nightmare I mean it's crazy yes. 
um, <laughs> the, just the pure, the pure volume of time, but also what that time takes out of you, right? Because mm-hmm. you're just exhausted and you're hurt and you're broken and you're traveling and, and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And again, I realized that this was like three days ago that you finished, but <laughs> w- with, with having this important and, and very practical job that you're doing and that you're invested in and yet finding yourself attracted to these other things that again are 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 practical and and are addressing a specific need which is to reestablish sort of this baseline of how people are able to live their lives after they have suffered or while they're suffering from whatever mm-hmm. our systems have designed for them i mean so many of these morbidities right for people you treat are are they're not, I mean, a lot of them are inherited, but even those things that they've inherited or things that they haven't uh, don't have to be that way. I mean, there's entire societies right. that don't have these morbidities that, that we do, right? And, and mm-hmm. we've seen that those then were extreme liabilities uh, for these folks when something like COVID hits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you have a good sense of how you're using your energy and, and your time? Do you feel pulled in a lot of different directions or do you feel like it's, manageable because you're young and spry and all of those things. <laughs> um, I think because, um, because I played collegiate sports and like had that time drain, which it is, um, and, and commitment and having to get so many other things done because, um, the pre-med classes that I took at Stanford were not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, what are you even doing? It's ridiculous. It's hard enough. Man. I don't, I don't know what I was doing. I'm telling you, if I decided, if I just, if I knew, if I knew about three or four years ago that I, that I was probably not going to go to medical school, man, my GPA would be a lot better. I tell you. Um, That's but, a different conversation for you and but, me to have. Yeah, yeah, I get you. But yeah, I think like, as soon as I decided that I was going to, I was going to stop playing football. I had a lot more time for about a day. And then I started to pile that time back in with various different things. Um, and I think maybe I'm maybe I'm wired that way. I like to be busy. Um, I would often I would often joke like during college that that I hate free time, but I don't I don't necessarily see it in that sense. I just I more so frame it personally as as using that free time to work on things, work on passion projects. Um, so like after I finish my quote unquote day job, usually around six or seven p.m., then I'll take a little break, eat some dinner with family, and then I'll start working on one of my passion projects um, for maybe an hour or two a night, a little bit on the weekends, and it brings me so much joy that I don't necessarily see it as work. So I definitely think like be from that football background of giving that so much time, um, I'm used to that because. I mean, I'd get out of football practice at like 6 p.m., 7 p.m., get treatment because my body was beat up, get treatment for an hour, take an ice bath, shower, go to dinner and get back. And I was like, okay, it's 8.30 p.m., time to start my homework. Um, So I'm kind of used to that life. Side note, how much do you miss the training room? Oh, oh, so lovely for my body. It's the greatest thing in the world, right? Yes, yes, actually... I hadn't I hadn't got a massage since I stopped playing football, um, and I just got a massage this past Wednesday. And my goodness, wow! Oh my god, right? Yeah, you do. You realize how much you <laughs> take it for granted when you come out and realize, like, 
Oh, there were just a fleet of people <laughs> and machines and hot tubs and ice baths and whatever you wanted any time of day who were like, let me take care of you. Yes. And let me tell you, Frank, that's not how the rest of life goes. <laughs> I'm, I'm already feeling it. I'm already, I know you are saying this three days ago, but I'm, I'm feeling it. And I, I get think, you. I think I might, I might try to walk down the street, um, might go right around Stanford, walk down the street, see if I could sneak in again. And just I act mean, like act like act like I still play there. <laughs> I know. Just take me back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? It, it's there's there's, and it's I don't I, I I really don't want to use these conversations as like giving advice because obviously we have entirely different aspirations and backgrounds and all these different things. But kind mm-hmm. of like parenting, like there's some universal things that are applicable. And one of the things about being sort of a former athlete when you've spent your entire life doing it. You know, I played 12 sports, you know, all these things, but especially college sports where you are, you walk in on day one and theoretically for the very first time, like your time is yours. You have all the time in the world, right? except for you have to go to practice and you, or you have all these things. You got to f- figure out how to make them work. And I know your family has a long history of, of exceptional athletics as well. So w- it's interesting when you get to be the adult side and you're figuring out what you want to do and how you spend your time, we find ourselves feeling, and often it's true that we're very capable of doing a lot at once because that's what we've always done and we have figured that out. Um, right. But it's very, very easy to make our our load and our limit the same thing, which is to always fill up up to our limit because that's kind of what we've always done and we've managed. I mean, Jesus, you did football and, and pre-med, which is just preposterous. But... <laughs> But, you know, and, and you had a life and all these things. But, you know, it's, it's interesting and it's helpful to, to take care of yourself and be able to take a step back and go like, am I spending my time and my energy in a way that is, uh, you know, I hesitate to use self-care, but also in a way that considers like, am I using this in the most productive way for myself and, right. and for these things that I want to do? Because, uh. I'll tell you again, like as you go on and you get to parenting and things like that, <laughs> the constraints come at you fast. So um, I'm going to say something to you and I want you to respond with sort of the first instinct that comes to mind. And it's from okay. a conversation we had, hell, I don't know, at this point, I mean, time is a flat circle, a year and a half ago, <laughs> I don't know, mm-hmm. with this wonderful uh, author, uh, I'm not going to say her name because if you've read it, I don't want to give it away. Um, she's, she's an author, she's an editor, um, and she's a wonderful thinker. And there's this quote in her book, um, that is something that she considers and uses to sort of guide her decision-making about her work and how she lives her life and all that stuff. She's an Mm -hmm. old person like me. Um, and (laughs) I want you to respond with sort of the first instinct that comes to mind. And it is, how can I be a better ancestor? I think the first step to becoming a better ancestor is first finding what you care about. Um, there's a lot of important things that that can be worked on that you can make your life's work to leave your legacy, um, whether that is the planet, healthcare, lifting people out of poverty, et cetera, or it could be fashion and, and making clothes that make people feel empowered. It, there's a variety of things, infinite in in a sense, and finding what you care about, I think would be the first step to that. So then you can decide how do you divide your time in order to 
work on the things that you care about. Um, and some people, some people have it, have things set up the correct way in that, or the ideal way in that their job, the, um, what puts food on the table is also something that they're incredibly passionate about. So that helps with a lot, but a lot of times that isn't the case. So I'd say to find what you care about in order to ensure that you're giving yourself the time to work on that if possible for you and and then pass those lessons down to your offspring, um, to the people that you raise, to the people that whose lives that you touch. And then because thinking thinking about my ancestors, like my my grandmother and the stories that I've heard from my about my grandfather and some other individuals in my family. The main theme that I recall from all of these stories um, that I learned about individuals that came before me is I get to hear about what what mattered to them and and why it mattered to them and what they what they did about it. And from like for my grandma in particular, education was huge for her. She she was passionate about education education and what that could do for children and and change their lives. Um, so she became a teacher and then was a principal at a school here in San Diego for several years. So that that's the core theme that I that I take down from all of these lessons. So I think that is what I would want to bestow as well as having a clear definition of what I care to what I care about, why I care about it, and what the hell I did about it. Because I think if you don't have that third one and like there's things that you cared about and and you didn't do shit, like I I would hate to look back and like whatever happens to the climate happens our world and to look back and say like, well, I didn't do shit about it. Like I cared about it. It's one thing if you don't care, like, okay, if you don't care, you don't care. But if you care about it and you know why you care about it and, and then you don't do shit, um, I wouldn't want to pass that down. Um, so, so that's those, those three things and how they tie together, I think is the first thing that comes to mind for me. Because these do, th- thank you for sharing all that. I mean, of course. they, they do pass down all, all the, the positives and negatives, right? One of the best things about, one of the best things and hardest things and, and most helpful and empathetic things that happens basically over your next 10 years is discovering that your parents are real people, yeah. humans. <laughs> um, and... Along that and after that, these things get passed down whether you want them to or not, right? Right. How you're remembered as an ancestor get passed down. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I love about that question. And uh, the author's name is, is Bina. And, and, you know, she made this point. She said, I, I don't, I'm not going to have, I, I'm, I'm probably not going to have children. I don't have children. Mm-hmm. But this applies to my nieces and nephews, and it applies to the whole world. And this book you would love, it's called um, The Optimist's Telescope. And, and we'll put that in the show notes. But it's such a practical question. It, whether you have kids or not, or you're a teacher or whatever it might be, it's such a purposeful question. Mm-hmm. Because, again, there's going to be things where, like, uh, Frank was really great. He did all these things. He faked health care. There's nobody in prisons anymore. Everything is perfect. But boy, you know, he uh, the, the way that guy brushed his teeth like drove everybody crazy. There's all there's always <laughs> going to be things, right? But right. man, if you can if you can find that question, whether you've got kids or not, or you're an old 
grandparent deciding what stories to share before you pass on. It can, it can, it can both selfishly influence your legacy, if we want to call it that. Right. But it can also help not dictate the future, but help show people like, this is what you can do with the time you have. Like, right. I don't know how much of like a super nerd you are, like I am, but Mm -hmm. especially with people have come down to a lot of Tolkien, uh, this year, which is, there's this great quote in, in, um, I think it's, I think it's the original, uh, fellowship of the ring from Lord of the Rings where Frodo's complaining and he complains half the time about, I I wish this didn't, I wish this didn't happen to me. I wish it didn't happen right now. And Gandalf, the old wizard's like, totally get it. I, I get it. I feel you. But the only thing that's, we can't control all that shit. And this is like very Buddhist too, right? Yeah. Like, and it's very, uh, you know, stoic, essentially. A lot of people are on the stoicism ride these days, which is like, there's so much you can't control, man. All you can control is what you do with the time you've got. Mm -hmm. And you can start to both write that story for yourself and also then later tell that story, you know, in a way that hopefully will have an impact later so that you're a better ancestor. You've not only raised the baseline, uh, you've not only like made your shoes bigger to fill, which is an awesome goal for folks, right. however frustrating it might be as a kid at first. You've <laughs> raised the baseline for a lot of people because you are working on this really broad level, but in a really practical level. But you're also hopefully making that a little a little better for for those kids out there. Like it sounds like you know your parents did and your grandma did for you. It's a, it's, it's a really impactful question. I think about it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm definitely going to simmer more on that after as well. But I think it's a it's an awesome question. The only thing that I'd add on to that is um, please something that that often comes to mind that I'm often thinking about is I think a lot of people know the adage of um, people don't people don't remember what you say they remember how they made you feel. I find oftentimes this true and truer and truer time and time again, especially when there's individuals that I haven't talked to in so long. Like I have no idea the last thing I talked to this person about. Can't remember a thing, but I I can't wait to see that person again. Um, just because I know how they made me feel. Um, sure. So given that, I'd I'd hope that my descendants, whether direct descendants or I already have a niece and two nephews, that they feel loved, that they feel an 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 overwhelming amount of love and care and and thoughtfulness. Um, so yeah, that's the only thing. That I'd that I'd add that they they know what I cared about, why I cared about it, and what I did, and that they felt love for me. I love that, man. I mean, if you're already operating on that wavelength, more power to you. I don't even remember being 24, so that's really cool. <laughs> but it does matter. It 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 gives you a frame of mind, not to be like mm-hmm. all strict and you have to follow this philosophy or do this, but mm-hmm. having these sort of just these these fundamental things that you check in with can really help sort of guide you. And I'm a big fan of, again, former college athlete. I I, I have all these systems, drives my wife nuts, like my to-do uh-huh. systems and all this. And there's just so, I'm both super productive, but it's just entirely too much shit. I have like 12 jobs. Um, <laughs> but I'm a big fan of, and I've wrote about, written about, um, you know, you have to operate from the, from the top, from the 30,000 feet values all the way on down and let those help dictate how you're spending your time and what the practical actions you're taking are like. How does this thing I'm working on right now fulfill one of those three or four things? Like, is it helping? Right. Uh, is it helping me be a better ancestor? What does that mean? Is it helping someone feel loved? Um, you know, uh, is it answering the question? I mean, quick secret: like the the single biggest thing you can use for 
if you ever have a partner, get married, is is the question, how can I help? Um, it will make everything right. easier. Um, but that also applies in a thousand <laughs> different ways. And it seems like you, you, Frank, are like almost already living that, which is you're just coming to these situations of people whose baseline keeps getting taken down because of these systems we've designed. And you're going, how can I help with that? And that is, it's, um, it's great, man. It's really inspirational. Thanks. Uh, um, I definitely appreciate it. And the, the word life's work, I don't know if that's, it's hard for me to contextualize like the same, the same way, like a trillion dollars is tough for me to contextualize mentally. Um, sure. Saying the word like life's work for myself is very tough to contextualize, especially since I got about a thousand years left. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's tough, but I, I think that that's, that's what my life's work is about. Um, hopefully I have quite a few more years left to keep running this race and what it will continue to be about. So I definitely appreciate it. And obviously, obviously I love talking about it. <laughs> For sure, man. Listen, I'm not going to keep you forever. I've got a few questions we usually ask all of our people, and I think they still really apply here. Brian makes fun of me because we called it a lightning round. It's not, but it's not lengthy. It's not another hour by any stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, first one is, Frank, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? This is probably not the answer you're expecting. Um, I the, love it. It's better. The, the first thing, in, the first time in life where I found I could do something meaningful, where I could change something, it's it's a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, Hit me. And it is not not profound by any stretch of the imagination. But the I think the first time I was roughly like seven or eight years old, roughly that age. And ever since, ever since I was young, like I was always a tinker. I still am. Like I walk into, if I'm staying at an Airbnb, I walk into the Airbnb, I open up every cabinet just because I want to know what's around me. Um, I've always been like that. My parents say like, as soon as I was tall enough to reach like the gas canister on a car, I'd like take it off um, just, just, be, just to look in. And this, my, my uncle who lives down at the, my grandmother's house, which is two houses down from mine, had this truck that is gone now, so I can I can reveal this. He had a truck that you could start, you could turn the ignition part without the key. I don't know what <laughs> happened to it. You can turn it on without the key. Like the key was okay. completely unnecessary. And we're we're like playing around on this truck, me and like some of my cousins. And I'm maybe eight or nine years old. And I turned the car on for whatever reason. I don't know. I turned the car on and I like drop the car from park to neutral and my house has like a little bit of an incline has a little bit of like a little bit of a slope so the car just starts rolling so we freak out and we jump out of the car we jump out of the van because the door is open we jump yeah. out and the truck and that this van rolls down rolls down the hill picks up some speed and like crashes into my other uncle's truck um <laughs> And it was like, it was kind of a loud crash. Like neighbors came out because the car, yeah, picked, yeah. the van picked up some steam. And obviously that didn't end too well for me. Obviously there was sure, some sure, repercussions sure. to be had. <laughs> um, but I think that that was when, that was the youngest moment I can think of when I thought like, I have the power to do things in the world and like things respond to me. Like I for can- sure. 
I can make things move like big things. And like yeah. me and my little self, that van was very big to me. Um, and I don't, I don't know how that may have affected my life trajectory or that thought, that aha moment, but that's yeah. definitely the youngest time I can think of where I was like, damn, like I, I did that. Although it was very bad yeah. things. Somebody could have yeah. gotten hurt. Thankfully, nobody did. It just must have bent up fenders. Um, but That's maybe, amazing. Maybe it set me on my trajectory. So you know what? It was worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you got you to gotta turn the ignition sometimes and see what happens. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. I have like 7,000 of those and I'm sure the repercussions were far worse. Um, so I'm glad you caused like minimal damage. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All right, Frank, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? One of my good close friends, Malik Antoine. Um, okay. He's actually a very recent Stanford graduate. He was a year younger than me. And we played together on the Stanford football team together. Um, and he's my guy, which if I'm thinking of a new side project, I'm like, okay, I need somebody who is going to just jump in with me, have no idea what we're doing together, um, who is smart, is going to be capable of figuring things out. Okay, let me call up Malik. So we, we've worked on some projects together. We've crashed and burned together on some projects, um, which happens when you're, and you're trying to do as many things as we do. Um, yeah. So he's, def- he's definitely had a, had a big impact on me and... Um, I love trying to engage and do things with that kid, especially because he's he's from Louisiana. Um, so we're trying to like figure out, okay, how can we raise the level of climate and sustainability consciousness within that state? Um, so that's sure. definitely been an uphill battle that we're still climbing. <laughs> I'm sure that's a complicated one. Louisiana, boy, it's something else. That's awesome, man. You got to have your guy who's, who's willing to uh, crash and burn with you. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, I love it. That's awesome. Frank, what's your what's your self-care? How are you taking care of yourself these days? Oh, I'm a big fan of meditation. Um, nice. I actually, actually just set my... I usually meditate at least three minutes every morning, um, which is not doesn't sound like a lot of time for people who, who are really deep into meditation. Um, it was like a... It was a journey for me, one minute up to two minutes, and I'm at three. I think I, I'm trying to work to do like a 10 minute, one 10 minute session per week. But every morning I do at least three minutes of meditation to just calm my mind, like scan my body, let my brain stop thinking. Cause I'm just always thinking about stuff, whether it's like a product advancement for Eric's health, whether it's one of these various projects, whether it's like, okay, I'm in San Diego for two weeks before I like drive across the country to New York. Let me spend this time with my dad, this time with my mom, see this sibling, yeah. that one. So I just need to let my mind stop sometimes. And in, in addition to that, I do like a quarterly tech detox is what I call them. Or I take a weekend, like right after I stop working on Friday evening and I turn off all my devices. They all double check. They all go to airplane mode and just power off for the whole weekend. They get turned on Monday morning. Um, and I... Those times, after every time I complete it, I'm like, why don't I do this more often? Um, yeah. Because it's just nice to get away from everything, especially like social media, which I'm not the one to say like social media is completely bad because I don't think it's totally bad. I think it provides some utility, which is why we use it. Um, sure. But it can it can definitely be overwhelming at times. Um, 
so yes, my meditation, my daily meditation and my quarterly tech detoxes help reset me. I love that, man. I mean, it's a, I, I'm a, I, I need to get back on the meditation bandwagon. I, I used to be pretty good about it. Um, but I, I am, I'm so annoyed because I, you know, I'll, I will come from the frame of mind of like, I got to find 20 minutes a day to do it. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not at all how yeah. the brain works or how <laughs> habits work. Like right. it's just never going to happen. Uh-huh. So start with one minute and yeah. you just do it every day. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's good to see you on this as well. You're also just much more astute than I am. Um, <laughs> last one, Frank, what's a book you've read this year that has opened your mind to a topic you haven't considered before or changed your thinking in some way? It's a book called not that bad dispatches from rape culture. And it was, a tough read because there are individuals who are discussing their experiences with, with rape and sexual assault. So it's, it's incredibly heavy. And I read, yeah, it's, it's an anthology. So it's a collection of stories and there's about 31 stories, I want to say. So it took me a month to read it. I read one story a day just because it was so heavy and I wanted to like sit with each one. And I'm, I always considered myself check that. I did not always consider myself a feminist. I'd say like middle school Frank was quite misogynistic. Um, but but probably freshman year of college, freshman year of college and on started to really open my eyes. And since then I've definitely considered myself a feminist. And reading these stories really allowed me to to marinate in what I can do as um a cisgendered men and creating safer spaces and like speaking out on some of these topics so that these things that happen every day, but aren't talked about. Um, so they just quote unquote happen in the dark, um, kind of get their light, um, in these topics are that we just don't touch on are, are brought up. And that book like really crystallized some things for me. And it was just so powerful. So I I'd highly recommend that read if you want to sit with something heavy and kind of just marinate in it as you're on whatever journey you're on within the the feminism frame. I know some people have issues with mainstream feminism and the individuals that, that it might leave behind. Um, but I think this book is definitely a great one. That's awesome, man. I appreciate you sharing that. I will definitely uh, check that out. Um, we, on the wholesale, but especially cis men, do just a terrible job of educating ourselves on all of that because it's so heavy and I guess some people don't feel like they need to, uh, but we do, and uh, yeah. we need to do a much better job. So that'll go right in. We've got this great list of recommendations up um, from all of our guests on Bookshop, so we'll we'll throw that in there, and I will add that to my list. Thank you for sharing it. Awesome, um, of course. Frank, last thing, where can our listeners uh, follow you on the, the social media that you, you're trying to disconnect with? <laughs> oh, well, my social media handle is beast name Frank and boy Perfect. don't don't give me any don't give me any crap for that my sister <laughs> my sister made my my sister made my social media accounts like right when they came out like right when Instagram was created it was uh-huh. like 12, 12 years ago 13 14 years ago I, who, um, who knows I don't I'm not certain and I just have never changed it and I keep awesome. going through this like Frank like okay you're 24 now like <laughs> You're a business professional. You don't play football anymore. Like these things don't necessarily fit into your theme. Should you still be beast named Frank? Like time to grow up. Um, Bro, you're a healthcare monitoring beast. You're a prison reform beast. Exactly. So that's why I'm not, I don't think I'm changing it. I think it's just, 
it's just the thing. It's it's always been there. It's gonna be there. Um, and also you can you can also find me. Um, I just relatively recently released a personal website where I'm gonna be sharing like some cool organizations that uh, I want to get behind if if people are looking for organizations to donate to or maybe volunteer with um, or kind of ideas or inspirations where if they're on like their search for different grassroots organizations to connect with. So I'm going to be throwing some stuff up there and my website's pretty easy. It's Frank, like my last name has .com in it or or .com in it. So it's just frankbun.com. So yeah, can definitely can definitely head there to find to find some different organizations, things I'll be posting. Or if you're just curious about like what the hell I'm passionate about, um, sure. I'll definitely be dropping some things there in my my own personal corner of the www. <laughs> I was the whole time you were talking, I was like, no matter what he says, I'm gonna be disappointed that the website's not beast named Frank. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's frankbun.com and I was like, God damn it, that's so good. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <sighs> Dude, that that would have been funny to have it uh, be Snake Frank, but that thought didn't come to mind. I'm telling you that we'll it, it feels it feels a little childish to still have my name that, but I'm rolling with it. It's okay. <laughs> I love it, man. You got to keep that childish part. Uh, my <laughs> office is filled with like you know Star Wars and Indiana Jones stuff. My wife thinks I'm a 12 years old. So <laughs> she's not wrong. <laughs> Frank, this has been so great, man. I really appreciate you making the time, uh, coming to talk, being so transparent and honest about everything and putting up with this sort of new conversation version. But uh, it was really inspiring to talk to you, man. Yeah, Quinn, um, I appreciate you for reaching out. This has been a lot of fun. And yeah, man, looking forward to staying connected. And thank you for for having me on today. This is is awesome. Awesome, dude. Well, we'll uh, we'll have to do a follow-up for sure. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. (laughs) And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.